newspaper men meet such interesting people. They know the lowdown, now it can be told. I'll tell you quite reliably off the record about some charming people I have known. For I meet politicians and grafters by the score. Killers, plain and fancy, it's really quite a bore. Oh, newspaper men meet such interesting people. They wallow in corruption, crime and gore. Ding-a-ling-ling, city desk. Pull the press, pull the press. Extra, extra, read all about it. It's a mess meets the test. Oh, newspaper men meet such interesting people. It's wonderful to represent the press. The Media Project gives you a half hour of commentary and analysis. And on our better days, even some insight into what's going on in the news media these days. And welcome to our program. I'm Rex Smith. Your co-host with Dr. Alan Shartok, the CEO of Northeast Public Radio, joined this week as well by Ira Fussfeld, who was for many years the publisher of the Daily Freeman in Kingston, New York, and its affiliated publications, and Judy Patrick, who was the editor of the Daily Gazette in Schenectady, now vice president of the New York Press Association. Everybody ready here? Everybody feeling I'm, good? I'm ready, but I have a certain objection I want to bring forward. You identified me as the <laughs> As the co-host, <laughs> I don't want that responsibility. You're the host. I'm just a, oh. meager, su- just a meager supplicant. That's all I am. <laughs> just just little old unassuming Alan. That's it. I'm sorry. I didn't say little or old, did I? Just old. <laughs> Both are true. <laughs> well, we can't escape truth in our business. We have a wonderful piece of email from a listener, Bob in Round Lake, who says, hello to the Media Project. We will look forward to the Media Project every week. The room falls silent, he writes, when your show comes on. Thank you very much. Now to the point, he says, I I thought that was the point. (laughs) We can stop. Here's his point. Back in 1955, Emmett Till's mother insisted on an open casket viewing of her son's murdered face. The horror struck home across America and helped spur the civil rights movement I think we need similar horrific graphic images today. He points to Tom Hartman, who has a a newsletter on Substack that makes this point significantly. It says that in terms of mass shootings, which we are dealing with now in the aftermath of two in a single week period, pointing out that American journalism doesn't show this kind of violence, and he thinks we should. What do we think about that idea? Alan, you want to, even though you're not the co-host and you're not a humble fellow, why don't you lead us off with this? What do you think about having more graphic presentation of violence in the American media? Rexy, I don't think it's necessary that we do it, although I believe in freedom of the press, and I believe if people want to do it, there are some newspapers that will do it and some that will not. I know in your long-term history as an editor of a major paper, you struggled with this one, too. So on the one hand, let people know what's happening. On the other, I often worry that one of these sick individuals who does shooting, for example, uh, will get the publicity that he or she, probably he, has always wanted. And it bothers me that we would do that. We would play into their hands and say, okay, this will be your your notice for the rest of your life, which is what you obviously wanted. But, you know, I'm interested in what you, Rex, and Judy and Ira have to say about this issue because you had to struggle with it every day. Well, it hurts me terribly to start the program by agreeing with Alan, but the fact is that historically, historically, mainstream newspapers have been hesitant to print very graphic photos, 
primarily because of the notion that we were a general interest family publications and that the images were not suitable for family viewing and that they were difficult to shield from families, if, particularly if they were above the fold on the front page. Like a lot of journalism, times are changing. There are other venues that these pictures can be used. But I suspect that if I was still running a newsroom, I would just remain hesitant to show graphic pictures on the front page. Yeah, we weren't always so hesitant. I remember going back through my old newspaper's archives, the Gazette, and back in the 1930s, we would run horrific photos of murder victims. I remember one man laying on the couch. He'd been shot multiple times. There was blood on the on the wallpaper, there was blood everywhere, and we and we ran the photo above the fold on the front page. You know, in modern times, we have been reluctant to do that. Partly we do it out of deference to the victims' families, who would be very upset if they saw those images. Just recently with this Atlanta shooting, there was video circulating on Twitter of a photographer or somebody who went in with an iPhone, and he shot dead people lying on the floor of the supermarket. And there was a a lot of discussion on Twitter and on social media about whether or not that should be recirculated or whether or not that should be used at all. As a local newspaper, we have always tried to tell the stories of people who have been shot, who survived, but it's difficult because not everybody wants to talk about it. Hospitals, to protect the privacy of people who have been shot, don't want to follow this because even if you are just shot, often you have lifetime injuries that you have to cope about, and those are important stories to tell as well. But nowadays, we do tend to protect our readers from the horrific scale of the violence. Again, maybe if, if people saw it, they would be more amenable to changing the laws or discouraging, you know, our fascination with guns. But at this point, I tend to veer down on the side of protecting the victims' families, at least. Well, so let me just help get the conversation going a different direction because of, you know, Alan doesn't like to have us all agree about things. <laughs> Note this, with tobacco, we have shown pictures of the impact of, well, it's, I guess it's been more in advertising than in journalism, isn't it? Blackened lungs, people with part of their jaw excised because of cancer. Car wreckage as a result of drunk driving. I remember back in the early 80s, I was part of a team that did some of the first reporting on the impact of drunk driving that led to drunk driving reform. This was a big deal, uh, but we haven't done this. I think that given the rise of digital media, the fact that we're not talking so much about people getting their news from these print products that we're all so eager to protect people from the reality of and reading, the fact that digital is a place where you can actually do this. If you put it on a site so that you are actually able to show, and, it, and it's more realistic that way too, if it's in the bright color that you can see the images that show up on your cell phone. There may be something to be said for doing this kind of thing. What Tom Hartman says is that leadership from multiple venues in American journalism, print, television, web-based publications, should get together, I don't know about that, and decide what photos to release, how to release them, and under what circumstances it could be done to provide maximum impact and minimum trauma. I wonder. Mm -hmm. You know, Rex, if my memory serves, something you just said brought this up. I believe Sigmund Freud, and in many ways, Sigmund Freud, of course, was a genius. There are people who have certain aspects of his philosophy that they don't like. But, you know, he did die of cancer of the jaw, the very thing that you just brought up. Now, the idea that the preeminent psychiatrist, psychologist of our time died that way because he overindulged in tobacco, 
If you put a picture of that on the front page of the paper or even anywhere else, it is something that will stick in a lot of people's minds and serve to save a lot of lives. So, yeah, that enters into it, too. Tom Hartman, let me just mention the, the fine Hartman report on Substack. Hartman with two N's, if you want to read this. He points out that in 1996, there was a horrific slaughter in Tasmania by a shooter who used an AR-15, the kind of thing that we're seeing being used for most of the mass homicides in America. And while the Australian media didn't generally publish photos, they were widely circulated. And the result was the Australian public was so repulsed that in a year, semi-automatic weapons in civilian hands were outlawed in Australia altogether. Strict gun control went into place. The gun buyback program. That happened while there was a prime minister of Australia as conservative as Ronald Reagan was. So this is sort of a, a laboratory, which we may say could be like what might happen in America. The difficulty is it has to be done by the media because absent that, the government is not going to do it. There's too much political opposition to gun control, even though there is citizen support for it, even though a majority of citizens would like to see, according to polling, an outlawing of automatic weapons in civilian hands. It's not going to happen. There's too much political power in the Republican Party against it. So I think it's really worth considering. Let me just add to what you've just said, as usual, in a fine statement. And that is, it isn't just a majority of Americans. It's almost all Americans. It's 88% of Republicans want these laws changed. So what we're talking about here is something that may be for the public good and maybe should be done. Now, when the votes are taken in the House of Representatives and the Senate, you're not going to find anything like the numbers reflecting how many Americans want gun control. And I think that that is the editorial question that the New York Times, that the Kingston Freeman, that the Schenectady Gazette, the Albany Times Union ought to be handling. From a media perspective, there's a practical reality that does involve the government, and that's access. Unless a photographer has access to these images, to the car wreck, to the mass shooting, a lot of times we are held at a distance and we don't get those photos. And I'd like to raise the point, would any of you have wanted to see published anywhere the photos of the children at Sandy Hook who were slaughtered? I mean, I don't think I, I would not have wanted to see that. It would really have had an impact, but the damage it would have done to the families, I think the notion alone that those children were killed is enough. I didn't need to see the image. But now we are, aren't you going the opposite direction of your initial comment where you <laughs> talked about what kind of horrific pictures you did run in Schenectady. Now, I'm going to be the naysayer on this one. I just, I hear all the arguments in favor of it. I'm not convinced that running those pictures would advance the cause of gun control. I think it is dramatic enough to have a headline that says 10 people killed in supermarket shooting with the accompanying stories. But I have to really be convinced that there is good value in running pictures of the 10 bodies lying on the sidewalk. Well, I don't know how to convince you, Ira, because, you know, you're not an easy man to convince. Um, <laughs> well, I thought I was on your side. Yeah, well, I don't know. But, he switched. Uh, and, and, yeah, what, <laughs> and, what, and what side was that? Okay, 10 kids slaughtered versus the picture of an innocent child lying there dead. Now, we know the information is being given out, but I'm thinking about impact here. Now, you say out of respect for the parents. I get that, and I certainly agree with it. Nevertheless, think about it for a second and say, we don't want this kind of thing to happen again. 
Now, yesterday on one of these programs, got very angry with me and said, nothing's ever going to change. And I think you get change, but you have to work towards it. You know, you had the Sandy Hook, the terrible, terrible, terrible slaughter of those children, and nothing really happened. But as we graduate towards some kind of sensibility here, I think the press plays a huge role. Well, in the uh, immortal words of the sage Mick Jagger, you can't always get what you want. And while we may hope that there is some sensibility, I think you're right, Alan, that if nothing happened after the slaughter in Sandy Hook, then what can you do? America has essentially decided that even sacrificing children is not as important as letting people have their guns. Guns are more important in America than the lives of our precious children. That is the political decision that's been made in America. And that is what I think the media has a responsibility to point out to people over and over again, though that comes off as sounding like biased reporting, doesn't it? As value-laden reporting, which in our youth we were taught is not the way you're supposed to do things. It's so interesting. You know, I was watching TV very early in the morning, and somebody on CNN in the morning brought on a guy who saw the whole horrific recent shootings, and he was talking about how terrible it was, and how he hid people behind ash cans and did all of this. And then he said, but I'm a believer in the Second Amendment. I'm a believer in gun rights, and I and my friends and I go to the gun range all the time. And it shows you the bifurcation. Somebody who saw the terror that occurred and at the same time still believes, as you say, Rex, in this all-American idea of guns for all, which means I read somewhere that there were three guns for every American. So that's a lot of guns, right? Uh, And you say, okay, at what point do we give up what we, we want and how reflective? And I try to end every sentence on any political subject with this sentence. How reflective is our news media of that? Well, now, isn't this another example of the disinformation problem we have in this country that we don't usually describe in terms of the gun argument, but to what Rex was saying of of the media sending out the message of gun violence and the harm, etc., the people who want to hear, who need to hear that message aren't necessarily listening to the media outlets that are going to display those messages. You're not going to hear that on Fox News. You're not going to hear that on some of the fringe websites. And so the people who we would like to be sending the message are simply not going to get the message. And this is, of course, this disinformation is spreading throughout our society and on, on any number of issues that we could come up with. Right. Fox News barely covered the Colorado shootings, while the other cable news network were primetime, back-to-back, full coverage of, of what was happening. Fox mm-hmm. was still airing Tucker Carlson and, you know, their standard anchors. They were not they were not doing the blow-by-blow coverage that we were getting elsewhere. And it's clear that their audience is not getting the sense that something very tragic happened in Colorado because they were doing other stories, which is a real application of their responsibilities as a news channel. Maybe they're not a news channel, though. The primetime lineup, which is where they make a lot of their money, they're loath to take away those programs, regardless of what the news is of the day. And you're right, Fox News Channel is a misnomer because it's really Fox Opinion Channel. I think it may be a little different, Ira. You know, I've always been a believer, to the great consternation of many of the people who appear on this show, that every time a decision as to whether to run a story or not, or to emphasize it, is a political decision. So... It is not surprising to me that Fox, for example, 
doesn't do what they need to do in order to inform the American people because they don't like the political message that's attached to it, and they don't think their watchers are going to like it either. So if politics is the authoritative allocation of scarce resources, I guess you guys have heard me say that before, mm. then, yeah, then, <laughs> then you better believe that Fox making a decision not to play this stuff is a political decision, as it is across the line with all of the press. See what I did there? Well, with all the press, absolutely. And, you know, I think you you raised a significant point, or maybe you just accidentally allude to it, Alan. It is uh, this bifurcation of the media, the media splintering, that is, so that there isn't an authoritative voice. And I'm struck by the fact that the kind of reporting that we do these days is much more heavily value-oriented, let's say, biased, or you would say political, Alan, than it used to be. As we speak, the front page of the New York Times headlines, let me just read this to you. It's amazing. It's what we called in the newspaper business a twin out. That is two stories, two headlines side by side that are set up exactly alike, like twins. Here's the twin out at the top of the New York Times front page. One of them says, Republicans distort facts at hearing. The other one says, GOP aims to seize state ballot levers. These are articles on the fight over voting rights. But you would not have had a few years ago, even just a couple of years ago, a headline that in a publication that tries to just tell it straight, as we were taught to do, would say Republicans distort facts at hearings. That would have to be sort of an undercurrent that people would uh, would learn rather than being told directly. And that's a result of the New York Times deciding that truth-telling matters more than seeming to be unbiased and trying to appeal to everybody. And is that a good thing? I think it's a good thing. In the old days, Rex, as you say, and I'm the oldest of us, and I can remember the old days. In the old days, much of what you just referred to, those two stories, would have appeared perhaps on the editorial page, but certainly not this way on the front page. Right. They're definitely not mincing words anymore. And, you know, I tend to think it's a good thing because words matter. And newspapers or the media in general has kind of been mealy-mouthing things. They they use these kind of um, milk-toast approaches to verbs. And now, you know, if 26 children are killed at an elementary school, call it what it is, a slaughter. You would say we're killed, but the word slaughter is a viable word. Let's use that word. If they're distorting what's happening, say that. I think in part it's a reflection of what's happening in Congress more than a change at the New York Times. I think things have gotten so crazy out there that sometimes you need strong words to describe what's happening. It's not a matter of taking a side. It's a matter of telling the truth. And sometimes you need a strong word to tell the truth. Well, I'm a reluctant convert. I mean, I I guess I agree with you guys on this. I'm not quite as old as Alan, but I'm getting there. I'm catching up to him. uh, We all do, do, you know. Yeah. My my background, my training, my experience is the old-fashioned way, and I'm the first to admit it. But the New York Times would have fired editors for saying some years ago, now it's part of the process. I certainly agree with this movement. I think that truth-telling is the fundamental responsibility, not just he said, he said, she said, she said. But don't you worry that this is going to further divide Americans because you will have right-wing readers abandoning the New York Times, say, leftish viewers eschewing Fox News. So aren't we all going to be just continuing to go our separate ways and nobody will get a picture of what's real other than what they already believe, what sort of biases they already assume are true. How do you ever get people then to hear anything outside their own echo chamber? 
Well, I do love your word, S-Q, and I'm going to have a hamburger after this is over. <laughs> however, however, I want to introduce one more potential into all of this, and that is that fewer people are reading newspapers now. And there are reasons, lots of reasons. We've had this discussion a thousand times. Young people in particular aren't reading newspapers. So maybe that forces change to the way that newspapers are telling the, quote, truth. And I think your point here is very important, Rex. The truth can be 10 kids were slaughtered or 10 kids were executed or 10 kids were shot as opposed to a single picture on the front page of the paper. And there's a big difference, I think, in all of those words in that picture and the concept of truth. But fewer people are not reading newspapers. Fewer people are reading the print product. But when you combine it with digital, I, I, the last numbers I saw, more people are reading newspapers than ever before. So, But I do believe that the New York Times has got to live with the fallout from headlines such as this. And, and this is one of the reasons I'm hesitant to applaud it, because I think they're going to be seen as not objective. And it's going to further alienate those who believe that's always been the case. Those people left years ago for far less objectionable or less biased headlines. I think that's already happened. I agree that there is some concern about long-term credibility in the community because of headlines like this. But I think the, the story's got to justify the headline, as we all used to say. You know, the headline has to support the story and vice versa. And so when you dive into the story, if that's what's clear, that's what the headline should say. You know, all three of you, Regs and Judy and Ira, you, you you used to be, right? You used to be the editors of major newspapers. And isn't there a tendency to say, well, that's the way we did it, and so that's the way they should be doing it now? Hmm. Well, there is probably well, some of that. I think we're all holding on, trying to figure out what part of the way journalism was practiced in the past was good to hold on to and what part is right to be cast aside. And the issue comes most clearly on the digital side of things, where now information is controlled by the tech giants, by Facebook, by Twitter, by Google. Those are the people who really are the gatekeepers of information, and they're the ones who now Congress is looking to, to say, what are you doing about misinformation? What are you doing to try to stop lives? Because the reality is political misinformation can sway elections. We saw that in 2016. COVID misinformation can kill. We have seen that just this past year. And if we don't have some serious action and responsibility by the tech giants that are the real gatekeepers today, as CBS News was 40 years ago, if we don't have some serious action to stop the spread of misinformation by these tech giants, we're going to have a society that has no clue what's real and what's not, and that has no respect for the facts. And you do that how, Rex? Well, <laughs> this is difficult. You do it by having thoughtful leadership on those tech platforms that invest more money in editing, honestly, to tell you the truth, that invest some of their huge billions, hundreds of billions of dollars of profits into the kind of thoughtful, okay, let's say gatekeeping, the kind of thoughtful journalistic decision-making that has been the model of previous generations so that there just isn't as much scurrilous stuff out there so readily available, frankly. It's a tough one because somebody has to hire the umpire, right? <laughs> and yeah. Somewhere there's a thing we call values that comes into all of this. So the 73 million people 
who voted for Donald Trump may feel that the game is loaded, that the umpires are not fair, especially when they kick Trump off of these social media platforms. When these social media platforms were created, one of their values was no gatekeeping, that you know the free flow of information and then that truth would ultimately prevail. I think that has been proven not to be true, that there is some need for gatekeeping. But whether or not Facebook and Twitter and all the other social media platforms rely on the government to tell them what to do, that's just not going to happen. I think they're going to have to work a little bit harder. I think I've seen some progress in that realm in terms of COVID misinformation. I am seeing posts removed, but still there's a lot of bad information out there about vaccinations. There's a lot of still a lot of bad information out there about the 2020 election still. They're smart enough to figure this out. I think they just need more of a will to do it. There are just too many holes in the dike to plug all the holes, and new outlets come up all the time. Trump is going to start his own social media platform. I'm not smart enough to know how you can control that. It's like a pen of wild stallions, and you open up the pen, and the stallions run all over the place. Good luck trying to herd those stallions back into the pen. Wow, pretty good metaphor. You got the stallions running right mm. through the holes in the dike there. I mean, this is... <laughs> <laughs> By the way, I wanted to quote Al Franken, who used to make fun of Senator Phil Graham regarding guns, and he would use the big, thick Southern accent, and Graham would say, I have all the guns that I need, but not all the guns that I want. Yeah. (laughs) Well, it is a perilous time. Assessing how the media is going to be able to deal with all this is difficult, and I think we're all right in the middle of trying to figure all this out. Okay, we actually are going to give it up at this point, folks. No. Because, uh, oh, yeah. You know, well, all we needed was one letter writer, and we were fixed for the show. <laughs> this should be an hour <laughs> program. Folks, if you want to join in the conversation, media at wamc.org. Media at wamc.org is how you write to us, and we are grateful for you uh, taking the time with us today. Judy Patrick. Ira Fussfeld, Alan Shartok, and I'm Rex Smith with gratitude to our producer, David Gustina, and to you folks for joining us again this week, once again, on The Media Project. It's a mess meets the test, all newspapermen meet such interesting people, like the richest girl who could not bake a cake, ding ling 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 Now newspapermen are such interesting people, they used to work like hell just for romance. But finally, the movies notwithstanding, they all got tired of patches. The Media Project is a production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. Alan Shartok is CEO of WAMC, Professor Emeritus at the State University of New York, commentator, columnist, and author. Rex Smith is the former editor of the Albany Times Union. Judy Patrick is the vice president for editorial development for the New York Press Association. And Ira Fussfeld is the publisher emeritus of the Daily Freeman. You can listen to or podcast The Media Project anytime at wamc.org or just download the WAMC. WAMC app for your iPhone or Android at the Play Store today. Thanks for listening. Now publishers of such interesting people, their policy is an acrobatic thing. They claim to represent the common people. It's funny Wall Street never has complained. Ah, but publishers have worries, for publishers must go to working folks for readers and to big shots for their dough. Now publishers are such interesting people. 
It could be prostitution, I don't know. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, circulation, ting-a-ling-a-ling, advertising, get those readers, get that payoff. What a headache, what a mess. Oh, publishers are such interesting people. Let's give free cheers for freedom of the press. 